Well, I'm really excited. We're walking into a, a, a series right now called Real Mature. And one of the pressure points I feel like we have been on and, uh, as a church and, and through this kind of journey with Jesus is how do we keep moving forward? How do we know if we're growing in our walk and our journey with Jesus? And here's the reality. Maybe for some of you in the room today, um, you have just been checking out this idea of a relationship with Jesus. Or maybe you had looked at it for some time and, and thought, ah, you know, I'm not sure where I land on that. Today's gonna be an awesome, day for you as we talk about some of the very, very crucial, critical, basic, but life-changing components to maturing and going somewhere on your walk with Jesus. And maybe you've been wondering how that works, and today we're going to unpackage some of that. So I'm excited for you for that. Maybe you have been on a, a journey with Jesus forever. Maybe you think back over your life, and you can't remember a time when you wouldn't have said, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I've been on a journey with Jesus. But perhaps for you, the question has just been, I've hit a spot, and it seems like I'm not growing anymore. I seems like I'm not pushing forward farther, faster. And there was a time on my journey with Jesus where I was growing faster and I was moving and I was excited and the things of God were filling me with joy and excitement and there was transformation and life change happening to me. But if I think about today, it's kind of like I've just been going through the motions and I feel this pressure of how do I move forward and where am I going from here? And, you know, it had me thinking about when do we kind of peak on our journey with Jesus? You know what I mean by peak? Athletes have a peak Sometimes we have different moments where it's like, this is our, our, the height of our ability to do this. The best we'll ever do at this. And have I peaked on my journey with Jesus? Did I, is it all downhill from here, guys? Or am I still climbing? Is there still somewhere to go? Is there still some direction? And can I go further still? And so, uh, so as in, in my uh, preparation for this, I saw this and I, I thought it was great. Um, there's a book that was written by this researcher from Florida State uh, University, and uh, his name is Anders Ericsson, and the book is called Peak. And he talks about different times. They did, he did a bunch of uh, research of when you peak for different things. And so I'm gonna do a little interaction with you this morning. So I know it's first service and you guys are all tired and you're thinking about the Super Bowl and all those things, but I need a little interaction from you this morning, all right? So, so look over at your neighbor and say, don't go to sleep just yet. See, you're already failing the interaction thing. Look over at your neighbor and say, don't go to sleep just yet. All right, I'm gonna give you permission. If you know the person next to you and they don't play along, give them a little poke. If you don't know them and they don't play along, just smile, don't poke them. We want them to come back, and you don't want you to be the creepy one that they talk about afterwards, all right? So just a little interaction with you now. I want to talk about some times that you peak. So here we go. When do you peak in your ability to learn a new language? So it's an age. What age do you think you peak in your ability to learn a new, a new language? Now, you can interact. I'm not going to interact with you. Just say it out loud. What do you think? 10, 20, 7, 15, 100. All right. The answer is seven years old. Seven years old is your peak to learn a new language. Most of you are much past your peak for that. All right. How about this one? When do you peak in your chance of making a Nobel Prize winning discovery? Woo. What do you think? Play along a little bit. Say it out loud. All right, survey says 40 years old. I still have a few months. I have a few months until I peak. I should be thinking about Nobel Prize winning discoveries. How about this one? When do you peak in your ability to remember faces? Ooh, that's a good one. 
Some of you are trying to think about, do I still remember faces? Like, I used to remember every face, right? Not always their name, but every face. Do I still remember faces? When do you peak in that? 30, you guys think? I heard 32. That was pretty good. 32 years old. Someone who was 31 said 30. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> They're like, it's all downhill from here. All right, how about this one? When do you peak in your ability to remember names? Oh, <laughs> some of you are like, I, I never peaked in that one. <laughs> I don't know when it is. I just know I'm past the peak for this one. Your peak, oh, 22 years old. 22 years old, right? You can remember your college buddies' names and that's it. You're done after that. How about this one? When do you peak? Oh, this is about emotional intelligence and understanding people's emotions. When do you peak in, you can be with someone and understand what they're thinking, how they're feeling, you can read their emotions well. When does that happen? What do you guys think? 45, 25? Look at this one. 51. 51 years old. It's pretty good. Good, what's the next one? Oh, when do you peak in your ability to run a marathon? I'm going to say 14, <laughs> 15, I don't know, 28 years old, 28 years old is peak marathon running. That's awesome. We have a couple more. Oh, when do you peak in your vocabulary? Think about who does crossword puzzles. That's a hint. <laughs> Everyone does crossword puzzles. When do you peak in your vocabulary? What do we think? 71 years old. Still one to look forward to. How about this one? Oh, I think this might be the last one. When do you peak in happiness with your body? I'm going to go back to 14. <laughs> 74 years old. 74 years old, you're finally happy with your body. Probably your vision is so bad. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe you finally hit the point where you recognize it's what's on the inside that really matters at that point, huh? You stop worrying about how much of this went away. <laughs> All right, that was a fun little warm-up game. But yeah, there is a time and a season when we peak for different things. So when do we peak on our journey with Jesus? How do we know if we're maturing? How do we know if we're growing? How do we know if we're moving forward? And, and is it even important. I love this passage of scripture because Paul says, and, uh, and for the whole series, we'll kind of be coming back to this passage out of Colossians uh, chapter one, verse 28. And he says this, he says, him we proclaim warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And Paul says, our proclamation is Jesus. We talk about Jesus and we declare Jesus and we tell and teach everyone about Jesus. Why? Because we want everyone to mature. We want everyone to be growing. We want everyone, no matter where you're at today on your journey with Jesus, to be moving towards a place of maturity and growth. We don't want to peak. We don't want to peak. I don't want to look back at my life and say, my peak of my journey with Jesus was when I was 20. My peak on my journey of Jesus was the moment my kids were born. My peak on the journey with Jesus was the moment my kids got out of the house. My peak, on my, that might be the peak moment, but not on my journey with Jesus. Come on now. So what do we need to know if we want to be maturing 
and mature believers. I'm going to give you three simple keys, and uh, this is what we're going to walk through over the next couple of weeks. And the first one is this. It's just spiritual intimacy. Spiritual intimacy. Are we having a personal, and this is what we're going to talk about today, relationship with the creator of the universe? The second one is biblical knowledge this next week. Do we know his voice? Do we know him? Are we aware of his revelation to us? If, if the person that you knew and loved the most wrote you a love letter, a personal love letter, and you didn't read it, come on now, how well would you really know them? And the last one is holy obedience. Holy obedience. Do we have a desire to walk this thing out and keep moving forward? And here's the thing I just want you to catch. Every one of us is somewhere on our journey with Jesus. We're all somewhere. We're all somewhere. We may be at the beginning of the curve, just starting you may identify yourself as, well, I'm, I'm kind of checking this thing out, but, but I'm just, a, I'm just a, a baby on my journey with Jesus. I'm just figuring it out. And some of us are like, I'm just, I'm in the middle of the heyday. I just got my Jesus diploma certificate. Some of you are like, I'm just working it out. And some of us are like, I'm just making my way to the end of my, of my race. But all of us are somewhere. So how do we continue to move along in a healthy way in this journey with Jesus, and what does it look like, and what does Jesus ask of us to do that? It's interesting because Jesus does ask something of us, and he asks us this. He says, hey, follow me. Follow me. You want to know how to move along your journey with Jesus? You want to know how to move along uh, to the next phase, to the next season, how to get unstuck? The invitation that Jesus always gave was follow me. Now, this is fascinating because I've followed a lot of people in my life, I followed a lot of people. I can think of people that I followed that were great blessings in my life, teachers and coaches and family members and parents. I can think of people that I followed that were not so great, led me down bad paths and to bad, poor thinking. But there are some things about uh, uh, the people that we follow that have, there's characteristics about them that cause us to want to follow them. I think about my favorite coach. I was uh, in the Little League All-Star program trying to make it to the Little League World Series, and I had a coach that just believed in me, just believed in me. I remember I never had an adult male grab me by the shoulders and say, you can do this. I believe in you, Mike. You got this. I remember what it did for me to just fill me with hope that there was nothing that I couldn't do. I also had a coach who, after a victory, made me run 28 laps from foul pole to foul pole for just celebrating too hard in the, in the, uh, in the dugout. So I've had all kinds of coaches. Come on, you've had some. There's nothing like being on an opposing field running laps after you won <laughs> to be like, oh man, this is humiliating, right? <laughs> but we've all had those experiences and people who have poured into our Lives And so what does it mean when Jesus says, follow me? And what is he like if we're going to follow him? Because the people I follow, I know what they're like. I know what they want. I know what their expectations are. Yet I get to Jesus and sometimes I don't know the expectations. Sometimes I don't know if I know what he's like or what he wants from me. And you know, I heard this illustration and it really it really hit me because it's, it's just so true and it articulated my situation. Maybe it articulated your situation. You see, when I first found out about this Jesus thing, I wasn't uh, real young. I was in high, uh, middle school, almost high school. I guess junior high is what we called it back in the day when you used to have junior highs. 
and I heard about this Jesus thing. And you know what the story I heard kind of went something like this at first? It went a little something like this. Hey, you ever touch something hot and burn your hand? Oh yeah, that's awful. Imagine that on your whole body. Oh, that's the worst. Do you want that? No, accept Jesus in your heart and you don't have to do that. Yay. That's all I knew about Jesus was I didn't want to burn. That's a horrible introduction to the creator of the universe. That's all I knew though. And I'm not blaming the person who communicated that to me. That, I, I just, that's all the picture I had was I needed insurance. I needed fire insurance, but personal fire insurance. That's all I knew about Jesus. That was my whole take on it. So as I began to find out about Jesus, it was, it was more about, okay, what does Jesus say for me to do? And it's kind of like this, this sick and twisted game of Simon Says. You guys have played Simon Says before? And you know, Simon Says, right? Let's play Simon Says for just a moment. We'll have a little fun as a church. Can, can, can we have a little fun this morning? Can I wake you up a little bit? All right, well, let's play a little Simon Says, right? Okay, so, so, so we know how Simon Says works. If I say Simon Says, then you do the thing afterwards. If I don't say Simon Says, then you don't do the thing or you've lost, okay? So you're ready to play Simon Says? All right, to start, let's just lift one hand. I see you guys are all out already because Simon didn't say. <laughs> See how Simon Says works? Okay, so, so Simon Says, don't fall asleep. Simon Says, listen to the message. Simon Says, interact with Pastor Mike is okay. All right, we're done playing Simon Says. That's all I needed from you guys. <laughs> right? But you know how Simon Says works. Simon Says is a very simple game that says you do this or you're out. If you do this when you shouldn't do it, you're out. And my relationship with Jesus was like this big giant game of Jesus Says. So I find out, hey, it's hot if I don't do what Jesus says. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, don't cuss, don't swear, don't do drugs, don't have premarital sex, don't have impure thoughts, don't steal, don't lie. And it becomes this list of, okay, Jesus, did Jesus say don't do that? Did Jesus say I could do this? And my entire early experience following Jesus was like this, this game of Jesus says, and I was afraid that if I messed up, come on now, I'd be out. And so then anytime anyone said, do you want to ask Jesus in your heart? I would just get resaved again because I figured I was losing the game of Jesus says. And there must be some way to win that other people had figured out, but I was too embarrassed to ask how to do it. And so I would just kind of keep going through life in this fearful posture, kind of going, did Jesus say I can do this? Is it okay if I do this? Did Jesus say I can do, oh, Jesus said I can't do that. Okay, Jesus said I can't do that. Okay, uh, dang it, I lost it. Jesus said, I really hope there's an altar call this weekend. you're all laughing because some level you've heard that story. Maybe it's been part of your story. Maybe it's been part of your experience and you felt this tension of what does Jesus really want from me? If it matters to get it right, then how do we know the game? Are we playing it right? Is Jesus really watching us like a game of Jesus says? Is that the experience he wants for us? It's pretty funny because this other tension began to happen in me. Because I'm competitive, I got better and better at Jesus says. Right? I might lose the first few times, but pretty soon I'm not, hey, not losing there. Didn't catch me. You know what happened then? Got pretty proud of my Jesus said skills. And when you're losing at Jesus says, and I'm winning at Jesus says in my mind, guess what happens to me? It gets worse 
and worse and worse. Maybe some of you, your church experience has felt a little bit like I'm the one losing at Jesus says and everyone's winning and looking down on me. Maybe one of the tensions you've had about being a part of a church family and going on a journey with Jesus has been this sense of, but I'm losing it, Jesus says, and so everybody knows it. And I really hope Pastor Mike does an altar call this weekend so I can get back to the starting line of Jesus says. But what does Jesus really say? What's wild is none of that encouraged me to actually get into the Bible and learn what Jesus said, nor did it actually encourage me to get to know Jesus at all. I was just waiting for someone to give me a list. Ten Commandments, good, 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 good. Any other policy, good, good. Yeah, Jesus said, don't do this. Good, 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 good. Just adding to my skill set of Jesus said. But as I began to get into the Bible, as I began to read about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I started seeing a story of a person who didn't meet my expectation of Jesus said. In fact, I didn't seem like he was very concerned about making sure I didn't just burn and burst into flames at every moment. I kept looking for where he was so concerned about that. Because my impression was that was the primary concern. Yet I watched Jesus interact with people who were clearly losing the game of Jesus says. And his conversation with them was wildly different than the conversation I would have had. Because I was winning. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to get into this picture of Jesus. Here's what's crazy about it. Is everything you see about Jesus is insanely relational. I didn't have a picture of relational Jesus at all. Yet every time he talks, he uses language like, my father says, your father in heaven says. He uses relationship like, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You're connected to me in relationship. He says things like, my sheep know my voice. Now, we don't love that because we don't know much about sheep anymore. It just sounds lame. Like, I don't want to be a sheep. Can I be something else? Can I be like your, my golden retriever knows my voice? At least that's cool, right? Be something somewhat cool. But he says, my sheep know my voice. I'm the good shepherd. And you get into the context and you start realizing this intimate relationship of, of thinking about thousands of sheep and the shepherd speaks and says, hey, this way. And in an in a, in a absolute just pile of sheep, the ones that belong to the shepherd pop up and say, oh, we know your voice. We know you. And they go with them. All of the picture that Jesus gives throughout the gospels, throughout the story of his life, is one of incredible, deep, personal relationship. And some of you are like nervous. You're like, Pastor Mark, you're saying we don't have to do anything? Remember, holy obedience is coming, week three. We'll get there. But if we start there, we'll mess the whole thing up. We've got to start with this idea of what does Jesus really say? And what does he really want from us? So Jesus is walking throughout this three years of ministry, consistently extending an invitation of relationship. And the invitation of relationship looks like these two simple words, follow me. But as I watch who he extends that relationship to, it's not people who are very good at Jesus says. Time and time again, it's people who aren't particularly great at it. 
it's working class fishermen. It's, it's, we're going to get into tax collectors. It's, it's people who have all walks of life, all uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnic diversity. He's walking into religious background differences and he's saying the same thing over and over again. Follow me, follow me, follow me. So we're going to get into one of my favorite stories in the scripture today, and it's Matthew chapter 9. And here's why I love it, because Matthew is the author of the book of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew tells the story about Matthew meeting Jesus from Matthew's perspective. But he third persons himself, because that's awesome to do when you're talking about yourself. So Matthew chapter 9 is written by Matthew, and it's the story of Matthew meeting Jesus for the first time. And he says, this is what it was like, basically, to meet Jesus for the first time. Now, when Matthew writes, he's writing to a culture of Jews who are already wildly familiar with the the context of one God, the context of uh, the creator God, who have been looking for a Messiah for thousands of years. And he's making his case that this man, Jesus, is God, God in the bod fully man and fully God, and that he's the Messiah you've been waiting for, looking for, and this is what he's like. And so we meet Matthew in Matthew chapter nine. Matthew, uh, it says, Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Let's stop right there for a second. Some of you heard me share some of this because it's one of my favorite stories in, the, in all of the scripture, but there's this incredible, incredible thing that you may not realize about the fact that Matthew is a tax collector. In this culture, at this time, tax collectors are incredibly hated. As a matter of fact, they are hated, like we think, oh, people don't like the IRS. No, 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 no. <laughs> the IRS is like Santa Claus compared to how tax collectors were viewed in this time in history. You have to understand something and you'll see it pop up in the scripture. Tax collectors were so reviled, were so hated that even in the scriptures, when people talk about tax collectors, they don't get the privilege of being lumped in with sinners. It usually says tax collectors and sinners. And the reason is they is a shock value to tax collectors that we don't understand that was deeper than the shock value of sinners. Right? Sinners were liars, cheaters, murderers, rapists, like the, the everything all the way through, right? That was small potatoes to this culture compared to tax collectors. That paradigm has to get in your mind a little bit as you realize Jesus walks up to a tax collector. Why was that the case? Well, because Rome's in charge and Rome needs to collect taxes. So what they do is they go into each little area and they sell the right to be the tax collector of that area to locals. And that local would buy that right and it's a lucrative business because here's how it works. Rome would send a contingent of guards, centurions, right? And they would help you enforce collecting the taxes. And Rome would say, we need this much tax from this area. And then you could go collect, we don't care how much you collect. Anything over that is yours, but we need this much and we'll send you enforcers to go collect. So it would be like if your neighbor bought the right to tax you and you were paying, I don't know, some, some number, let's just say 10% is what, what the government wanted. Wouldn't that be nice? And your neighbor comes over with a contingent of armed guards and says, I need 40% of your income. 
And you say, well, wait, the taxes are only 10%. Yeah, but for you, it's 40%. I know you just were at Bill's house. You only charged him 25%. Yeah, but I don't like you. I'm going to take 40% for you. And you go, that's not fair. And he goes, arrest this guy, throw him in jail. And now you're in jail till your family can come up with 40%. That was what the nature of a tax collector was. That's why they were so reviled. They were so hated. That's why when, uh, was it uh, Zacchaeus? That was also a tax collector. He says, I'll give back everything I've stolen. That's why it was such a big deal. They hated these guys. So Jesus is walking along and just imagine this. He saw a man sitting at the tax collector's booth and his words to him was, follow me. Now listen, in his posse, there are fishermen and other kind of businessmen. There's upper class, lower class, no class, but there's no tax collectors. They don't like these guys. I can imagine even the disciples being like, seriously, this dude, you're gonna get us killed out here, Jesus. Jesus walks to him and says, follow me. And it says, Matthew got up and followed him. The taxes in Rome were outrageous. There were so many taxes. There was sales tax. That sounds familiar. There was inheritance tax. There was land and properties tax. They actually had a marriage tax. If you were of age to be married and you didn't get married, you were paying tax to stay single. There was a religious tax. You could serve other gods than Roman gods. You just had to pay for the right. There's freedom of religion if you buy it. There was a poll tax. Hey, you just live here. Here's your tax for existing. I had to count you when I was doing my head count tax. People hated these guys. What's fascinating is being a sinner was a prerequisite almost. It was a prerequisite for Jesus to issue this command. He walks right to the worst of the worst. Some of you are thinking, Pastor Mike, you don't know my history. You don't know my background. You don't know what I've been through, where I'm coming from, what I'm dealing with. I'm just telling you, in this culture, in this narrative, Matthew, who is Jewish, writing to Jews, wants to make a clear distinction. I am, according to Matthew, I am what you consider the worst. And Jesus walks right to me with a two-word invitation. Follow me. I'm reading this and I'm like, okay, wait. He didn't do the illustration about touching something hot. Like, that's the thing, right? right? <laughs> Do you ever burn your finger on the iron? Yeah, you don't want that on your whole body? No, okay, follow me. There's no illustration here. How is he so persuasive? Imagine just how much charisma Jesus must have had to walk right up to someone doing their job that they paid dearly for. They paid for the right to do this. They're earning a massive income. And to walk right, can you imagine someone coming right to your job you're at work date, you're just like on the phone, in comes this guy, he's like, hey, leave all this behind, follow me. And you're like, I'm out. <laughs> and you follow Jesus, but that's what happens here. This is insane. And we see this, right? We see this in, uh, uh, earlier in the gospel accounts as, uh, as Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee and he's speaking to these fishermen and he's like, hey, come with me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they're like, drop the nets and follow him. The invitation was always to follow. The depth of this invitation is so powerful. Um, he's known as a rabbi and a teacher at this point. Having an invitation to follow a rabbi or a teacher was a really big deal at that time. So there's a depth of invitation and weight to the invitation. There's some respect that's there, but ultimately it's just follow me. 
I love that Matthew gets up and follows him and there's no prereqs. There's no, hey, leave all this behind, pay everyone back, say you're sorry three times, do 100 push-ups, follow me. He just says, hey, you know you're doing the wrong thing. Just come with me instead. Can we just be real on a church level here? You know you're doing the wrong thing. Jesus is like, just come follow me instead. Some of you, some of you are like, what do you mean I'm doing the wrong thing? Listen, you got rules in your house and you don't even keep them. You got rules for your kids and you're not even keeping them. You got expectations for yourself that you're just self-imposed things and you can't even, you're not even keeping them, not at a hundred, come on. Jesus says, wherever you're at, you don't have to change all your behavior. You don't have to get it all figured out. Just come follow me. Let's just start from here. Don't go clean it up and then come follow me. Just come follow me. That's always how the invitation began. Matthew hasn't made a commitment. He hasn't made a decision. And then look what happens in verse 10. It's insane. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Wait, what? He went to Matthew's house? This is tax collector Matthew. This is the whole community hates him. Everyone hates Matthew. And he goes, he says, come follow me. Oh, let's eat at your place. Matthew's probably thinking, there's some stuff at my place. I don't want the rabbi seeing. I don't want him getting in my DVR. I don't want him seeing what laundry I have and haven't done. I don't want him seeing what, you know what I mean? But it says Jesus went and had dinner at his house. And look what happens. Many tax collectors and sinners. See, I told you they couldn't be in the same group. Tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So Matthew, Jesus is coming over and he's like, man, Jesus is coming over. We gotta fill this place up so I look awesome. Problem is Matthew's friends aren't awesome because people who are awesome don't wanna go hang out with Matthew, the tax collector. So who gets invited? The sinners and the other tax collectors. That's his crew. That's all that will hang out with him. So imagine this, you picture this big house, he's wealthy. Tax collectors and sinners use your imagination. And here comes Jesus and his disciples. They're like, we're gonna eat with you guys. He's hanging out, eating with them, drinking with them, spending time with them, telling stories, hearing their stories. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, uh, why does your teacher eat? With who? Tax collectors and sinners. They won't even lump them together. Now, I love this picture because there's no way the Pharisees are getting in that building. They're not invited in the house, nor are they ever going in. So they gotta be looking in from the outside. And I just, I love this picture of these Pharisees outside looking in the window. Look at that Jesus guy. He's totally eating with sinners and tax collectors. Psst, Peter, psst, hey, why does your teacher eat with these guys? Doesn't he know he's better than them? Like we don't like him, but we really don't like these guys. Why is he hanging out with these kinds of people? Why would he do that? Verse 12. On hearing this, so Jesus hears it. And he goes, hey, it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. Now hold on for just a second because this picture is hilarious. 
He's at a table probably, right? He's eating. They're passing around food. They're telling stories. It's loud. There's a crowd here, and it's sinners, right? This is a good party. This is not a Christian party. Process that for a second. I'm messing with you guys, right? Yes, Christians can have good parties. Just saying, this is a party now, right? Party's breaking out. It's enough raucous and, and commotion that these church folks are looking and going, you can't hang out in that environment. And Jesus looks over at them and says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Who else is in the room? The sick. Can you imagine going over to someone's house? You're hanging out there. You're eating their food. You're drinking their drinks. You're laughing, telling stories. And someone's like, why are you hanging out with them? He's like, because these guys are sick. <laughs> just imagine the tone in the room. And I can just imagine Matthew going, yeah, that's us. <laughs> right? That's us. We're the sick ones. We're not healthy. That's hilarious, Jesus. High five. Cheers. Right? He literally just right in front of them says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. That's insane. Go, Jesus. And then he tells the Pharisees, um, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's a spiritual journey issue. These people, these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, have spent their whole life trying to win at Jesus says. And here's the problem. As I get better at doing what Jesus says, somehow it doesn't always seem to make me more like Jesus. Here's these people who have given their whole life, these Pharisees, they're religious teachers. They study the scriptures religiously. They memorize it. Jesus even hits them with, go and see what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He hits them with a verse from Hosea that they're going to recognize, an Old Testament scripture. He says, hey, you religious people, go and learn what it actually means. Don't learn to quote it, but learn what it actually means to live it. And this is a spiritual journey issue. Sometimes as I get better at doing what Jesus says, it doesn't seem to make me more like Jesus. I end up less like Jesus. I end up more judgmental. I end up on the outside of the party that Jesus would be on the inside of. It's a little tense in here right now. Some of you are trying to figure out how to reconcile this picture of Jesus. But here's Jesus walking right into somebody's world saying, come and follow me. And then going to their house eating their food, drinking their drink, listening to their stories. And in the middle of that, saying very clearly, hey, these guys are sick, but I love them, and I'm here, and I'm with you. And they're like, yeah, we're sick. Banging their drinks on the table. I don't know what they're doing. Somehow I just see, like, Lord of the Rings dwarves everywhere, just, psh, psh, I don't know. Too much time working in the movie business for me. By movie business, I mean movie theater. <laughs> Here's Jesus saying, these people who are working really hard at winning, Jesus says, winning the Bible says, winning at that game, they don't like me. They don't like Jesus. 
They're studying, they're studying, they're learning, they're learning, but they don't like Jesus. They don't like what Jesus does and they don't like how he behaves. There is a disconnect between learning and knowing more about Jesus and actually being more like Jesus. And it creates a tension because they've received the same invitation, follow me, but follow me wasn't necessary to them. Why? Because they're just gonna learn about him instead. And they're filled with head knowledge and they've missed the heart of Jesus. They've missed that it's relational. They've missed that it's relational. They've missed the whole heart of Jesus in this. Pastor Mike, are you saying I should just do whatever I want? No. I just want you to catch this. You know, the scripture is clear that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Paul says it that way, and I love it. He says, God's kindness leads to repentance. What does that mean? Repentance is changed behavior. And I thought it was hot stoves that led to repentance. But here's the thing. I'm only going to be afraid of the hot stove for so long. It's only going to be a deterrent for so long. Eventually, I'm going to learn to play the game of Jesus says that I get do-overs. I just got to wait till Pastor Mike does an altar call and I can start over again. I don't have to change my behavior at all. Come on now. It's not going to lead to actual repentance and change. The scripture says it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. What does that mean? It means when I get to know what he's like, who he is, how he is, God's a person. He has personhood attributes. He wants to be known and to know you and he's kind and he likes you. And because I know him and he likes me, I have a heart to become more like him because I know that's what's best for me. And the scripture says it's this kindness that leads to repentance. You know what Jesus is doing with Matthew? He's being kind. He's not changing the truth. He's not saying not sick is healthy. Right? He's not saying sick is healthy. He's not flipping the, the code. He's not saying everything that's happening in here is good. He's saying, these are sick, but I love them and I'm kind towards them and I'm with them. And the invitation to them is the same as the invitation to you to come and follow me. And when you do that, you'll start growing. When you do that, you'll start moving forward. When you do that, you'll start knowing my heart. You'll start knowing who I am. He's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for authentic relationship. One of the biggest roadblocks we have on maturing, real maturing, is that we think we have to somehow perform our way into greater maturity. Performance will get us to the next level. I have to win it, Jesus says. I'm getting really good. Oh, oh, Jesus didn't say that. Yes, I'm still in. Jesus is saying, performance isn't the key. Relationship is. Knowing me is the key. Knowing me will lead to better performance, and we'll get to holy obedience. I'm not living, I'm not throwing it out. Why? Because why would I want less than his best for me when I know that he wants what's best for me? And it changes my heart and my life, but I don't start there. And if you're stuck, I'm wondering how much of it is that you've missed the relational piece. And early on, the relational piece was driving the whole thing. And you were growing and it was exploding. Jesus designed us for relationship. Look at John chapter 15, how he says this. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. I love this. My command is this, not my recommendation. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my what? Disciples. 
Oh man, you guys all lost Simon Says. You're supposed to interact with me. You are my friends. If you do what I command, you're my friends. But there's behavior connected to it afterwards. I no longer, I love this, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. Down in verse 17, it says, this is my command, love each other. Now, I love this word command because it messes with me. Because I'm like, oh, this is Jesus says. I finally got it right. Here's my command. This is what he wants. Here's the list. Love each other. And I was breaking down the word command there. I was trying to figure out what does it really mean? What does he really want from me? The Greek word there is intole. And I love this definition from the Strong Concordance. It just says authoritative prescription. This is my authoritative prescription. The word command there literally is translated as authoritative prescription. Now, you know the difference between a non-authoritative and an authoritative prescription, right? A non-authoritative prescription is when you get sick and your grandma says, just do your laundry with some garlic in there and uh, sleep on this side for three hours and roll over to this side for three hours. That's not an authoritative prescription, okay? That's not. But when you go to the doctor and he says, take three of these or you're gonna die, that's an authoritative prescription. You need to do this. Why? Because otherwise it will not go well for you. And Jesus is saying, my authoritative prescription, this is the doctor telling you how to live this out. If you want to experience the friendship and the relationship with me, my authoritative prescription is be loving towards one another. Get that right. Miss that part, you die. You lose the game. Here's my authoritative prescription. You want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus? Here's the authoritative prescription. Love one another. So we have this incredibly cool picture of Jesus who just says, hey, my invitation is to come and follow me. And it's my kindness that's going to lead you to change. It's my kindness that's going to lead you to change behavior. And my authoritative prescription for your life is that you learn how to be loving. This is my command, love one another. You're my friends if you do this. You're following me if you're doing this. You're growing if you do this. You're busting out of this season of being stuck if you're doing this. And if you're not doing this, you're gonna be stuck. You're gonna be outside the party looking in going, why are they doing it that way? Why is Jesus okay with it? He clearly can't be okay with that except he's in there and that doesn't fit my paradigm. And Jesus is looking on the outside saying, go and learn what this means. It's mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus doesn't come with a list of all the things you have to get perfect and then you're in. He comes with an invitation and an authoritative prescription. He says, hey, you want life? This is great. Come, follow me. I'll write you a prescription. Love one another. Be loving. And suddenly there's this tension of people who are like Jesus behaviorally but don't have the heart of Jesus and people who don't have all the behaviors figured out but are getting to know his heart. And Jesus says, that's what I'm looking for. There's an authenticity to that. Is that permission to just go crazy? No. It's permission to start wherever you're at today. It's permission to not feeling the guilt and the shame of you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, but you're not perfect yet. You've been walking with Jesus for a long time and there's still some chinks in the armor. It's permission to say, I've heard about Jesus for a long time, but you don't understand. Here's my reason why I'm not walking with Jesus. I can't get past this issue. And he's like, just come follow me. 
my kindness will help you change. My kindness will help you grow. Let me give you three keys before we get out of here. And then we'll wrap it up. Three keys to following Jesus. Just some things I want you to catch. Number one, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect. Maybe somewhere on your journey with Jesus, someone stood in front of you with a microphone and something that they could bang on and somehow implied to you that there was some behavior you had to somehow achieve or else hotness. And Jesus' invitation never, ever started with that, right? He said, come and follow me. And we feel this pressure of, but ah, pastor, I don't have it out. There's no sin, there's no habit, there's no behavior that puts you outside of the circle of invitation to come and follow him. And if you don't have that piece down, if that hasn't clicked yet, you're gonna stay stuck. You're just gonna stay stuck, that's how it goes. This gonna be hard for some of you, number two, you don't have to believe it all. Woo! Pastor Mike, we're kicking you out. That's heresy. Oh, I want you to believe it all. You just don't have to to get started. Right? I want you to believe it all. I'm trying to believe it all. I'm on that journey. But you got to start somewhere. You don't have to be 100% certain of everything to get started. Listen, how many of your decisions in life, your big epic decisions, were you at 100% before you started? How about your decision to get married? Were you at 100%? Were you at 100% at the altar? Some of you are like, oh, I was at 100 You were not at 100%. Come on. I'll be the honest one. 99.9%. <laughs> yeah, this is what I want. But there's a 0.01%. Like, ah. I don't know if this is going to work. I'm not totally sure that I know what I'm doing here. I never would have said that at the altar, though. I never would have said, do you take this bride to be your 99.9% certain? That would be absurd, right? Somewhere some faith had to get in there, and I had to jump that last point percent. For some of you, you're like, I'm interested in this Jesus thing, but I got some questions. I'm stuck. I'm at like 89%, 90%, but I don't like the way you answer dinosaurs. I don't know what it is. I don't like the way you answer whatever thing it is, whatever that thing is that's in, your, in between you and Jesus right now. And Jesus is like, come and follow me. And you're like, ah, I'm not at 100% yet. You will do nothing in life if you wait for 100%. You won't have kids. You won't take the next job. You won't decide on a restaurant. I mean, you'll do nothing. If you have to be 100%. So when I say you don't have to believe it all, I'm just telling you, you can still have some questions. You don't have to have every piece figured out. We'll go on that journey together. We'll ask those questions together. I, newsflash, still got some questions. I still wrestle sometimes as I get into the word of God and I listen to the voice of God and I spend time with Jesus and I go, ah, my answer is I'm not sure yet, but I think this today. And I'm figuring it out. And it's like therapy. I get up here and just try to work it out with you guys. I'm just being real, right? 
We're trying to find out. Cause I want to, because why? Because I want to win at Jesus, but I just really want to know Jesus and his heart. And Jesus is in the people business. He says, love people, and people are complicated. And they mess up my paradigms. And I can't get to 100 because they're inconsistent. Let alone me. And the only one that's consistent is Jesus. He's like, just keep loving them. So you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to believe it all. And the last one is just don't compare yourself to everyone else. Right. Don't compare yourself to everyone else. You want to get stuck on your journey quicker than any way else, go, well, that's, no, I'm not as far as that person. That person known Jesus less time than me and seemed to have ran ahead of where I'm at. And I, I just, don't play that game. Can you imagine if Matthew was playing the comparison game? Tax collector Matthew, if he was just like, well, I can't even get into the sinner category with these guys. <laughs> so I guess I stink, right? Like, it would not have worked out well for him at all. He had to just say, you know what? I don't care where I come from. I don't care what I've been through. I don't care who my parents were, what job I've done, what characteristics, what sin I've been in, what I've messed with, what I haven't messed with, what I said yes to, what I said no to. From this moment on, I'm gonna start moving towards Jesus, wherever I'm at. And so you break out of this holding pattern, trying to follow Jesus. Let me tell you why this is so important. This is the beauty of the church. What God breathed into life and designed is that there are people from all backgrounds and all places along there. Remember that little journey? All places along the journey, all moving in the same direction. No matter where they were starting from, they're all going the same direction direction and it creates this swell of emotion and motion and a life change and transformation and we get to go hey I'm not as far as Jeff but I'm moving that way and I might be a little bit ahead of Joe but he's coming along with me and he's watching me and I'm moving with him and he tanked and I love him and we're going forward again and he and I tanked and he loves me and we're going forward again and when that starts happening in the body, when movement starts happening, when we stop getting judgmental and being like, oh, you lost, Jenna, Jesus said. You lost. You know you lost. Let's all get around and talk about how you lost. Everybody look at the one who lost it, Jesus said. When we get that out of us, we stop playing the game that way and we start just saying, no, 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 follow me. Hey, hey, yeah, I saw you fall down. Let me pick you up. Come on, let's follow. Look at what Jesus has for us. Awesome. Let's go this way. Let's go this way. Let's go this way. Let's go this way. And some of us are farther ahead and some of us are further behind. And Jesus is like, don't worry about comparing yourself to somebody else. I called the lowest of the low, the tax collector, just like, come on now. I walked right into the place of, 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 of spiritual depth and maturity and said, you guys can come follow me too. Same invitation, same conversation. You don't have to get there all in one day. You don't have to believe it all. You don't have to be perfect. Just don't compare yourself to anyone else. Just go. Just move in that direction. What's the direction? Authoritative prescription. Here. Come with me if you want to live. I'll write you a prescription. Love one another. Start loving people. Just start loving people. See what it looks like to follow me? This is what it looks like to follow me. Oh, you're having <laughs> the worst day of your life. They're threatening to throw rocks at you because you've just been caught in the worst sin moment of your whole entire life. Oh, okay, how about you just come follow me? 
That's the invitation. And that's the beauty of the church. That's the beauty of when we come together and start moving forward. Now, listen, I told you I'm gonna start pleading with you about Rooted, and here's why. Because these are the kind of moments where we come together and start pointing ourselves at the same direction. We start saying, we wanna jump into this stream, go the same way, have the same conversations. I don't care if you're way ahead in the journey, if you're way behind in the journey. Your questions when you're way back here in the journey, right? Sometimes are the most important, powerful questions you could ever ask, and it might rock someone who's up here to go, oh my goodness, I've been running my journey for so long, I forgot to ask these questions. We need the strength those of us that are farther ahead of the questions and the searching and the journeying of those that are further behind and those of you that are farther ahead and been journeying forever, we need your wisdom when we're back here trying to figure it out. I'm trying to figure out how to love my wife. How do you keep loving your wife? Let me tell you how I kept loving my wife. Jesus. I started treating her like she belonged to Jesus instead of me. I started treating her like she was created by Jesus with a plan and a purpose for her life that didn't just mean making my life better. I started assigning value to her and treating her with respect and listening to her and and, and figuring out how I can serve her so that she can take her strength and serve me. And we figure this thing out. And it's like, that's awesome. Thank you. I needed that. And I'm running ahead and running ahead and the guy falls down back here and goes, wait, 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 wait. There's some messy sinners back here and it's hard, it's hard to love them. And I go, oh my goodness, I've been up here running so long, so far from them. Thank you for reminding me to come back and embrace some mess and be kind and be loving towards them. And that's the kind of church that begins changing neighborhoods, changing culture, changing the world. That's what we're called to here. That's who we want to be. That's why we're going to be fasting. That's why we're going to be praying. That's why we're going to be saying, God, I want to hear the vision and the picture of what you want to do because we want to be going in the same direction because we want spiritual intimacy with you. We want to know you, not just head knowledge. And we're going to get to head knowledge. Head knowledge is helpful. It is helpful. It's helpful to know what in the world you're talking about. If you don't know what in the world you're talking about, it's going to be harder. Right? Not impossible, but harder. So we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about holy obedience. We're going to talk about how do I actually live it out and when I slip and fall and move forward and what, what does that process look like? We'll have those conversations. But it's not going to get us anywhere if we don't start the conversation talking about, are we going to follow Jesus? Are we going to all go the same direction? Are we all going to have shared experiences of moving in the direction to hear his heart and love the people he put in front of us? Because if we do that part right, Momentum will start to happen and movement will start to happen and change will start to happen and the power of the gospel will start to get unlocked in our lives and in our community. Would you stand with me? Didn't say Simon Says? No, I'm teasing. You all just lost. I never said the game was over. No. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Jesus. We just want, God, the maturity that comes from knowing you, knowing your voice, and following you. I pray our hearts would be challenged to walk this journey with you, that we would step out of comfort zones, break our paradigms, and literally live your authoritative prescription to love one another. And think about what would happen if we did. I pray that today we'd have a great day of friends and fellowship and This weekend would go well and all of those things would be great. But I also pray in the midst of this that you would challenge our hearts in this next season, the next 21 days, that we would be praying, fasting, listening to your voice, hearing 
from you and challenged in our hearts and in our lives to be transformed and changed as we follow you individually, personally, and ultimately as a church. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.